And we'll go through verse 8 this morning and a study that I've entitled Wealth from God the Father. And as we go through this first chapter uh, here in the book of Ephesians, I want to again remind you, in Jesus' name, keep in view what I said last week in our introduction, that the first 13 verses are the longest continuous sentence ever found in ancient Greek. The reason that's important is these are also some of the most contested verses in the course of church history because they provide the backdrop for a couple of doctrines that are very, very, very difficult if you yank them out of context to wrap your head around. They will remain difficult even if you leave them in context, but nearly impossible if you yank them out of context. And what I'm referring to is the doctrine of election and predestination and add to it the doctrine of adoption. And so as we look at these things this morning, the church, the church in the world, people who name the name of the Lord well-meaning on two sides of an equation that has, has been the battleground uh, of the Reformation, it's been the battleground of church history, uh, doctrinally, and, and I want to perhaps this morning uh, help you put behind you that battle. Because I don't believe that the Lord intended us to fight over His Word, which is intended to edify and build up. Amen? And so, as I say these things, I want you to clearly understand that I believe that those who are on the Calvinist side of these things, reformed in their theology, love the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that those who are on the Arminian side of this debate also love the Lord with all of their heart. But what we should not and ought not be doing is sitting around arguing over who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. And I can tell you without question, because I have been told that I am not going to heaven because I don't understand the doctrine of election, that people do say those things. In Jesus' name, that is not of the Lord. And so this morning, wealth from God the Father, and I pray as we get to the end of this, and we are going to partake of communion together, that it is the grace of God that saves men's souls. Amen? Amen? It's not understanding election. It's not understanding the rapture of the church. It's not understanding predestination. It's not understanding adoption. It is the grace of God that comes to us by faith in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God the Father who died on Calvary's cross, was buried in the grave, was raised three days later, and lives forevermore to make intercession for men's souls. Amen? That's the cardinal doctrine of Christianity. Without that one, not one of us will get to heaven. As I always say to people when they ask, and I've taught on this subject in Bible college, people will say, well, you know, I'm a Calvinist. I say, that's great. When you get to heaven, you're going to understand you made a choice to get there. And to the Arminian, I say, um, it's great that you're a Christian, and when you get there, you're going to understand that God sovereignly chose you before the foundation of the world. Both things are true. We must choose and we have been chosen. Hopefully this morning, you'll walk out of here a little less confused than maybe when you came in. But I know this, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. 
We can agree on that one. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit that works in us to will and to do as is your good pleasure. And God, would you ignite in us your word. God, cause it to to fall into that good soil of our hearts where we might take it and dwell on it and be blessed by it. And so, God, we give you this time. Use it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 4 here in Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to look at these first eight verses, and then I have a little short story for you. Even before, and I'm reading again from the New Living Translation, I'll look at the New King James as we go through this bit by bit this morning. Even before he made the world, before God made the world, and here it comes, something that the human mind cannot wrap itself around. Because if you take this out of context, you yank it from its plain meaning, and the reason that I say this is because this is a continuous thought. From verse 1 to verse 13 is a continuous thought. Look at it this way. It is a recipe for a very lovely cake called grace. In that time that we start verse 1 to the time we get to the end of verse 13, you can't take part of it out and still get the grace cake. You're going to get something else. And it'll probably be a works cake, okay? Not a good deal. Works don't taste all that well. You must leave all the ingredients in. And so as we look at these things, stick with me until we get through the cake recipe, okay? Don't go, oh man, I can't believe it. Even before he made the world, God loved us. Take out your pencils, take out your pens, and I want you to circle either the name of God, a personal pronoun, either him, his, he, or himself in these next few verses. You're going to find at least 15 of them, depending on your translation. So the emphasis here is on what God did for us. Amen? It says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. And so we praise God for the glorious grace that He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. And He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son, forgave our sins, and He has showered His kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Amen? Father, we ask You now to just Cause us to take this in. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You you see, we have these blessings at the very beginning of time. And that's hard for us to understand because most of us were born after the turn of the, the 20th century. Amen? I don't think there's probably any of us in here that were born in the 1800s. I'm looking around the room. I'm pretty sure I'm right. Okay, so for the last hundred years, 
Maybe if you were really one of the ancient saints here in the church, you might say, oh, for the last 80, 90, maybe 100 years, I can think about time. Before that, it's kind of an abstract to you, amen? I've seen a horse and buggy. I've actually ridden in a horse and buggy, but I sure don't know what it's like to have to live my life dependent upon a horse and buggy. We have cars. So for us to think in a sense of today is really the only way that we have to relate to some of these things that twist our heads a little bit. It's hard for us to think back before there was a universe. Amen? I don't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. So how am I going to remember what was before time began? When God in the heavens said, you know what, I love my creation. I love my people so much, and this very day I'm choosing them in Christ Jesus. Whenever that was, in eternity past. That's where our story begins for these verses. Eternity past. To say that you don't get that and I don't get that is kind of an understatement. Amen? Tough for us to gather. But stick with me, because I think we can look at this passage and really make some heads and tails out of it. So in this passage of Scripture, these verses that form a continuous sentence, I want you to personalize this, because this is the problem. If you don't personalize these things, if you are not one of the we, if you're not one of the us, if you are not in him, then these things are excruciatingly abstract to you. D.L. Moody said it this way in 1896 in a little story that he wrote called Five Million Dollars. And I quote from that story, he says, One thing I know, I cannot speak for others, but I can speak for myself. I cannot read the other people's minds or their hearts. I cannot read the Bible and lay hold of it for others. But I can read it for myself, and I can take God at his word. And the trouble is that people take everything in general and do not take it for themselves. And that is the doctrinal issue. People try and say, well, all of these people think this way. We don't think the same on what the football game is going to do this afternoon much less on the very fine points of doctrine with regard to eternity and what God does in it. He goes on to say, Suppose a man should say to me, Moody, there's a man in Europe who died last week and he left $5 million to a certain individual. You see, our ears perk up immediately, amen? And at that time, $5 million would be the equivalent of over $500 million today. This is a bunch of money. Well, I say, I, I don't doubt that. It's rather a common thing. Rich people die every day, and I don't think any more about it. But I suppose he says, to me, he left the money to you. You see, now it becomes a personal issue, amen? On one hand, in abstract, we believe that somebody died in Europe and left one singular person $5 million in the context of this story. That's some of us... That's sometimes many of us. At times, I think it's even all of us. We look at God's Word, and in abstract, we pull it out, and we go, oh, it applies to the church. Or in abstract, it, it applied to people in times past, but we don't own it for ourselves. This morning, brothers and sisters, in Jesus' name, would you own this passage for yourself? He goes on to finish this. He says, and then I pay attention, because I say, to me? Yes, to you, he says. 
and suddenly I'm interested. I want to know all about it. And so we're apt to think that Christ died for sinners. He died for everybody, but nobody in particular. Moody was right. He died for you personally and for me personally. Jesus hung on Calvary's cross and for your name, he said, for Jeff, it is finished. He's not going to be born until 1955, but for him, it is tetelestai. It's finished. We must keep this passage in that context. This is for you. It's for me. It is for the collective us and we, but it applies to me personally. God has elected you. God has foreordained your life. God has set you on this earth for a plan and purpose. He sovereignly works and acts according to His will and purpose in every individual life and always has. But at the same time, those wealthy things, those gifts of grace, are not yours until you say yes to them. God wants to give them to you, but they are not yours until you claim them. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, opposite sides of the coin of grace. In order to help you understand this, I think I need to spend a little bit of time, and I do mean a little bit of time this morning, with the two most common fallacies. If you're here this morning and you are of the Reformed tradition, receive my apology in advance. I mean no discredit to anyone or anything, but I do believe that there is a view that is held by many that causes people to stumble. And it is the Calvinistic view of unconditional election. And what that simply says is, if you happen to be a strong Calvinist, you happen to be of the Reformed bent or theology, that God, in essence, has a master list, because they take election so far to say that if God did not elect you, you cannot be saved. Which means your choice means absolutely nothing. In other words, nothing you do actually matters. And yes, this is the extreme form of that theological bent. And I readily acknowledge that. But basically, it becomes an issue of God's sovereignty. And as I speak of this, I speak of members of my own family that hold this particular doctrinal place. So please bear with me. Basically, by unconditional election, there is an acrostic that's used in describing this type of theology. It's TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, limited atonement, perseverance of the saints. Five things. You'll hear it said, the five points of Calvinism. Under that point of unconditional election, this is the proof text, the one that's before us this morning. And basically what the Calvinist believes on the extreme side is that God has in heaven a master list. And on that master list are the saved, and on that master list are the damned. And if you yank this verse out of context, that actually is pretty accurate. But it also means that not everyone can be saved. 
It also means that God never intended to save everyone. It also means that at the end of the day, if you're not one of God's elect, then God foreordains you to perish and to burn eternally. It makes God the author of the most evil thing that we could ever think of, and that would be to send someone without any choice to eternal damnation. You need to be real careful, because if that's your view, then you've got some serious problems with what Scripture says. And lest anyone think that I'm blowing this out of proportion, I will quote directly from Calvin's, John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, Book 3, Chapter 23, where it says, and I quote, Not all men are created with similar destiny, but eternal life is foreordained for some, and eternal damnation for others. Every man, therefore, is created for one or the other of these ends. We say he is predestined either to life or to death. That means your choice means nothing. That couldn't be a God who offers grace freely to all men. That could not be a God who says to all, to as many as received him, because that means there are some that can't receive him. That means there is no such thing as all when God says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you get what I'm saying? There has to be an all, and there has to be many. Both must exist simultaneously. In other words, not all will be saved, but many can be saved and will. They exist simultaneously in God's mind's eye. For us, began in eternity past. Most Christians will, believe, will tell you that they believe that God sovereignly works in the affairs of men. But when it gets down to personal choice, does God override our personal choices? I say to you, he does not. He could, but he does not. You see, God will keep uh, all who trust in him. God will save any who ask, but God forces himself on no one. God's not going to make everyone be a Christian, nor is God going to send anyone unwillingly into hell. That is a tough thing to wrap our heads around. Very hard. You see, as we sit here this morning, does that mean that God simply made things happen? You see, if you begin to blow this up, here's what happens. Well, I guess the reason that people are Hindus is because God never intended to save them. I guess the reason that people are Muslims is God never intended to save them. I guess the reason that guy's a mass murderer is God never intended to save them. You see, what it does is it makes God the author of pure evil. And ultimately, that changes the very nature of God. And so that extreme position can't be the case. It can't be. And unfortunately, very often what happens, as is the case with John Calvin himself, as is the case with Vic Lockman, who wrote the seminal book called Tulip, that's used by Reformed theologians to talk about this particular issue, they misquote these verses. And in fact, they quote generally half of them. And in that booklet, it actually does quote, for he hath chosen us before the foundation of the world. He doesn't quote the rest of the verse. What does it say? According to that, he has chosen us before the foundation of the world, that 
We should be holy and blame without him in love. You see, there's a purpose for the choosing. Amen? It's not choosing for salvation. It's choosing for holiness. It's choosing for work. It's choosing for us to do the things that God wants us to do. And so what it really says is we've been chosen to be God's loving instruments. And so as you look at these things, the other side of this equation would be to take the Arminian position. So you have the Calvinists on one side, the Arminians on the other. And the Arminians take it so far the other way that human choice is everything. That God doesn't do any choosing. Matter of fact, God doesn't actually care. That God is kind of neutral in salvation. That God looks at us and he says, well, if they want me, okay, but if not, that's okay too. And that is a simplification. I'm doing this for the sake of time. Because I don't really think we need to belabor it. But I think you need to understand that if you twist Scripture, you can prove just about anything. If you yank these verses out of context, you can come up with something that binds men's hearts, minds, and souls. And I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've spent time countless hundreds of hours ministering to people who have this particular problematic bent of election in view all the time. Because here's what happens. Every time you sin, if you believe God sovereignly acts, then you either just overrode God's sovereign purpose or you're not saved. Amen? So to the Calvinists, they walk around, I don't even know if I'm one of the elect because I sinned. And to the Arminian, they say, I need to get saved again because I just blew it. Family of God, God didn't intend us to have this type of a mind to where we're tossed to and fro. If grace can't save you, then nothing can. And if grace can't keep you, then nothing can. And so the fact that we can't put, you know, just a, a mark someplace on a page and say, hey, turn here, and it explains God's sovereign purposes and man's choices and how they interact, doesn't mean that both aren't taught in Scripture. Both are taught in Scripture. The full sovereignty of God and the absolute necessity of you to choose Him. I doubt if Jacob Arminius actually understood the conclusion that he pr proposed, because ultimately it does strip God of his sovereignty. And it gives him huge problems with the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Romans chapter 9. When you look at those passages, it's like, well, what do I do? The only conclusion you can come to is you're not permanently saved. But you need to get resaved all the time. And in fact, Pastor Chuck actually tells the story of being on the on the Arminian side of the doctrinal argument and, and remembering getting saved over and over and over and over and over again because he could not see the permanency of the grace of God because of this chapter. Well, if I'm elect, if I sin, I must not be one of the elect. So I need to get saved again. Family of God, don't stay there. Read the rest of the chapter. It solves the whole problem for us. You see, because we don't absolutely understand these things, again, as D.L. Moody said, he said, if you try and explain the doctrine of election, you'll lose your mind. But if you try and explain it away, you'll lose your soul. Because God did choose you. But you also have to choose him. Those things work in concert, one with another. God looked at you before you were ever born and said, I want Jeff. 
And he also said, unless he believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he can't be saved. So because God wants me to do something, doesn't mean I'm forced to do it, amen? Because God has a desire for me, doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to do it. You who are parents, you know these things, amen? You have things you want your children to do, amen? But if you force them to do them, did they do them or did you make them do them? You see, God doesn't make us do everything he wants us to do. He leaves us with the freedom of choice. He did so with the nation Israel, prefiguring what happens in our lives. And I want to bring this to a close because I don't want you to have your head spin off your shoulders. If you desire further details, come sit down in my office and we'll have long chats. We'll pull out Calvin's Institutes, all the volumes of it. We'll go through them page by page, and pretty soon you'll give up. So what does this mean? I'll leave you with an analogy that's good for today. You're going to watch, most of you, I would assume, will probably watch some 60 million of us do the Super Bowl. And one of the best shots, unfortunately, this is an indoor game, so they'll have a camera on wires up there. But we used to, when all stadiums were open, use a blimp, amen? And that blimp would hover over the stadium. And as that blimp hovers over the stadium, that camera angle provides something that the people on the field cannot see, amen? And so as you watch that picture from the blimp, you're seeing things, relatively speaking, from God's point of view. He sees the offense, he sees the defense, he sees the open passing lanes, and he knows exactly where the ball should go. Amen? That's God's sovereignty. In other words, when he looks from heaven, he knows what's happening in the backfield on the offensive side. He knows what's happening in the safeties on the defensive side. He knows exactly what needs to happen. But just because he does, he's not allowed to call in the play from the blimp to either side. Amen? That would be what we call cheating. So what God does and what the commentators do is they simply go, man, there's an open pass. Oops, he got it. It's the same basic concept with God. He sees the whole game. Not only does he see the one play, he sees the entire game before it starts and after it finishes. And so as God sees it, he sees it from that blimp view in all of its detail, every single movement, every play simultaneously. And guess what still has to happen? The quarterback still has to rear back and throw the ball. Amen? The receiver has to leap and grab it at his fingertips and come down with it without it touching the ground because then it would be an incomplete pass. You see, from God's point of view, he sees what needs to happen. He knows exactly how to make it happen. There are people on the field with the gifts to make it happen, but they must take their individual place in the game, grab the ball, throw it. It must be received. They have to run for the touchdown. Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. They work together. That is all you need to remember. God knows things you don't, and you don't know everything he does. Amen? Don't be dismayed. Verse 5. For he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So now he adds to this, and it's so important to continue to link these things together. Don't just leave 
adoption and election and these these very obscure doctrinal issues by themselves because if you do you'll never have peace on these issues your minds will be so twisted that you will just go i don't even know I'm not sure I even want to study God's Word anymore. And I've actually had people tell me that. I'd rather not know. To be predestined simply means to be marked out beforehand. Let's stay with the football analogy. What does the offensive coordinator do in a football game? Beforehand, in the locker room, what does he do? He marks out a play. Lots of them. In fact, hundreds of them. Amen? It's the same thing God does. He predetermines the things that are going to happen from his point of view and then hands them off to us in human responsibility to take and run with them. It's all predestination is. God knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows when it's going to happen, but he doesn't make it happen. He simply hands the playbook to the quarterback, which in this case is you, the receiver in this case is you, and the defensive backs, you. You see, you have your part to play in all of this. And so he says, we are predestined, but notice what we're predestined to. We're predestined to be adopted. Not predestined to be saved. Adoption doesn't save you. Redemption saves you. The price has to be paid for you. You're adopted because of the redemption. In other words, when the price is paid, and that's why we're going to do communion today. When the price is paid, you're adopted into God's family. You are predestined to the adoption. In other words, when you say yes to Jesus, your next thing that you're going to know is you're going to become a child of God. Not every detail of your life is mapped out from God's perspective, and if you don't do it, you're somehow outside of His will. He's saying, I have predestined you to be fabulous, wealthy, and a member of my family. Notice what you're predestined to be. Our relationship is very much like like a judge sitting behind the bench. And I hope none of you have had this experience, but a judge is sitting behind the bench, and he just throws the book at you. I mean, you have been just evil, vile, despicable, and he throws the book at you. He gives you every single penalty he possibly can. You jaywalk, double park, we're speeding, and you actually sideswiped a cop car, okay? You're just... Pfft. Judge comes out, stands at the bench and said, you are guilty. You're absolutely guilty on all counts. No trial necessary. I saw it. You see, because that's God. Amen. He doesn't need somebody to come testify of it. He knows it. Right? He's sovereign. God from the bench says, I got a video. It's right here. The moment he pronounces you guilty, he comes around the bench, sits down on your side of the bench parks it right next to you, and says, oh, by the way, I paid the fine myself. You're totally guilty, but you're also free. You're completely guilty, and you should have gone to prison for eternity, but I'm setting you free. Not only that, you don't ever have to worry about restitution, because I've already paid it. And not only that, get this, you're coming home with me. Adoption. You're coming home with me. I'm going to adopt you into my family. You're not just set free. You're coming into my family. You're going to be a part of my family. And oh, did I tell you I'm a multi-cregillionaire? Whatever that is. I got more money than God. Oh, that's right. I am God. 
What amazing compassion is that? Amen? If you've ever been in a courtroom, I've never actually been in court as, as a defendant, but I've been as a witness before. It stinks. It's not cool. Judges can be kind of in your face. Amen? They look at you, oh, you know, what are you doing? You're an idiot. Yeah, well, Yeah. But how awesome would it be for the judge of the universe to sit down with you and go, you you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We're going to get to that in chapter 2. But I want to set you free. You can't pay the price yourself. I'm going to pay it for you. And you're going to be a part of my family. How awesome is that? We're predestined to be adopted. So when Christ says... To tell us, die, it's finished. And you receive that, you say, I agree with you, Lord. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And I'm accepting the price that you're paying for me. I'm saying, yes, you see, the judge could come around and sit down with that convicted felon. And guess what happens? The felon could say, I don't want your money. I don't want your compassion. I don't want your gift. I don't want any of it. Matter of fact, I like being a felon. I want to stay right here, for they loved the darkness more than the light. You see, you can stay in it. God's not going to make you take his gift. He's going to offer it. The result of taking it is you're in his family. Hallelujah. Amen? You you see, keep these things together. So we're chosen in him to be adopted. We're not just chosen. We're not just offered some of us salvation and some of us damnation, we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to become children of God through the redemption of the blood which is coming next. Amen? And so he says, and we agree with him, about this issue of election. It comes from the heart of God. It didn't come from me. God saw me before I was ever born. So it started with God. It should be an incentive for me to want to please him. Amen? Imagine what that criminal would feel like if God, the judge, came around and sat down and said, Oh, by the way, I've paid it all. It's okay. I would think you're going to have a lot of compassion towards that judge. Amen? You're going to want to serve that judge. Amen? You're going to want to do everything you can to be well-pleasing to the judge. You see, that's what grace does in our lives. I I say because of God's grace, Oh, Lord, let me do something for you in return. I don't have much, but I do have my life. And you can have my life. I want you to be Lord. Take my life and use my life. Hallelujah. You you see, that's our privilege as redeemed ones. As ones whose lives have had the price paid for them. So as you consider that divine selecting process, remember it's unto what comes next in verse 6. Notice what it says. To the praise of His glorious grace. And this phrase is so awesome. We did this at the beginning of service, by the way. To the praise of His glorious grace means to celebrate the grace of God. Probably all of you have been to a 4th of July celebration. Amen? Everybody been to a 4th of July? And you're sitting there. I don't know about you, but I am absurdly patriotic. I cry when I see fireworks, the national anthem. I... I I'm going to cry this afternoon. They're going to play the national anthem. They'll probably have a military honor guard out there. I'm going to cry. I'm just telling you straight up. Come to my house. You can watch me cry. <laughs> just what's going to happen. 
I, I love America. And when I hear the Star Spangled Banner, when I sing God Bless America, something happens in my heart, I'm saying, yes! That's what the fireworks are about, amen? It's not just a bunch of boys with pyrotechnics, though all boys love pyrotechnics. We'll set each other on fire. But it's to the praise of His glorious grace. In other words, we map out this amazing celebration where we're going to set off fireworks to Jesus. We're like, yes, we're going to throw you a parade. Where we're going to say, we love you. And the tears stream down your cheeks and you go, you died for me. What else can I do? But understand what you did. To the praise of His glorious, glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves, which is Jesus. You see, I never served in the military. I was in the last draft for the Vietnam War. My draft number was six. President Nixon canceled the Vietnam draft. I was in that group of 18-year-olds. I never served. But I am the beneficiary of everyone who's ever served. Amen? All the way to the Revolutionary War. Every last patriot's blood that's been spilled to buy our freedom. I'm the beneficiary of it. And I want you to get this. To the praise of the one he loves. You see, just like my freedom, I didn't earn it. I just have received it. I've never fought for it. I've never been on foreign soil with my life in danger, though I wish I had. I wish I had. I've never had that privilege. I've never held that honor. But I've buried men who have. And women who have as well done the same exact thing. You see, I've received it. So the praise isn't for me. The praise isn't for my choice. The praise isn't for the one coming out behind the, the bench and saying, oh, Jeff, you're worth it. The praise is for the one who made it happen. That's Christ Jesus, your Lord. You see, you simply receive it as an American. You simply receive it as a Christian, one who's in Christ. It means to celebrate God. It means to throw a praise party. And so here it comes, verses 7 and 8. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, and I'm also going to ask the elders to begin to pass out the elements of communion. And it says here in verse 7, For he is so rich in kindness. Family of God, would you get this? He is so rich in kindness. His bank account is so full of kindness. God loves you so very, very, very much that He filled up the bank of His love with Christ's sacrifice for you. Do you get that? Family of God, do you get that this morning? You're that rich in Christ. That's what happened. God poured out on His only begotten Son the sins of the world. 
He said, I love Jeff so much before the foundation of the world that I'm willing to take the sin of mankind and place it on the son that I love. And I will take his life in place of Jeff's life. Your life. Do you get that? That's what this says. So rich in kindness and grace. Notice what he did. That he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. You see, without the remission of sin, you aren't seeing heaven. And there is no remission of sin without blood being shed. And so yours isn't good enough, so he spills Jesus' blood in your place. Do you get it? Have you laid hold of that truth? Because if you don't get that, then you don't get the wealth that you have in Christ Jesus. God from heaven in eternity past, because of His kindness, says, Jeff can't fix his own problem. He's incapable of dying for his own sins. He's incapable of living a sinless life. And I know it. And because I love him so much, I'm going to send my only begotten son to that wretched earth to be abused and beaten and mistreated, ultimately crucified and killed. Because He loves you. Because He loves me. Because we're wealthy in Christ. Because of the blood of His Son. And notice what it says. For He has showered His kindness. You see, when He elected you, and when He chose you, and when He adopted you, He did so for a reason. He wants to shower kindness on you. He wants to bury you. Many of us have probably seen, you know, the new shower things. You you can get like 47 shower heads in your shower. And you turn the water on, you're actually blind because of the water coming from everywhere. It's just like it's... It's not just like the regular old little dinky, you know, the motel shower heads from the 60s that put your eye out. You guys know what I'm talking about. You who are ancient ones. You see, the the picture here is to cover you completely. It's to cover you completely in kindness. Not one square inch of your eternal being will be left unsprayed by the kindness of the Lord. Do you get that? That's the picture. You're, you're drenched in the loving kindness of God. Do you get that? Please say yes, amen. Because you have to get this. It's not, a, it's not a little tiny, got the two little drips because you stink. You're, you're an absolute sinner. You're repulsive to God. And you're barely saved if you're one of God's kids. You are showered on in the blessings of God. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. It does not matter what you will do next week. From God's perspective, in eternity past, when Christ died, you went under the glory spout. Amen? You're being washed daily 
for the remission of your sin. You're being cleansed daily, moment by moment, for the forgiveness of your sins. You're being showered upon. And know where you can go, and know where you can hide, and nothing you can do, nothing, Paul said, can separate us from the love of God. Amen? You you see, when you link these things together, it gives you a little different picture than just God chose you. Amen? He chose you for something. He chose you to be a part of His family. He chose you to be cleansed and washed. He chose you to be showered with kindness. He chose you to be recipients of grace. He chose you for all these things together. Not just to simply save you. You need to be saved. He chose us. Along with all wisdom and all understanding. You see, it's in Christ alone that our debt's paid. Amen? That's the only way it gets paid. And here's the crazy thing. If your debt's been paid by Christ, not only are your past debts taken care of, you know, we've gone through some tough times financially in our country. A lot of people have past debts. Get this. God also wiped out the national debt. Your national debt. He took care of the old debt. The stuff that we owed from fighting the Second World War and all the wars, all the infrastructure that's been built, you see, everything in your life is covered under the blood if you're in Christ. Past, present, future. Showered with kindness. You get it? You you see, that's your love that you have in Christ. That's the grace that saves you. And the word sins here is a unique Greek word. It means sins of all time. You see, I've been showered to be cleansed. It's, I am eternally in the shower of the power of the blood of Christ. I am eternally in the shower of the power of the blood of Christ. So when I get up in the morning, rinsed. Yesterday's junk doesn't need to follow me. Today's junk doesn't need to be on me. Tomorrow's junk doesn't have to be my, my doing for tomorrow. You're cleansed. You're washed. That's why when you hold this, you hold the most powerful thing in the universe. It's the blood of Christ. It isn't atomic weapons. It's not military might. It's the blood of our Redeemer that's cleansed us and washed us and made us white as wool. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we come, Lord, as we receive, as the Apostle Paul echoed, as you, Lord Jesus, did at that first supper, Lord, it's because of your broken body and it's because of your shed blood that we are redeemed oh god thank you lord thank you no matter who wins that silly game this afternoon that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us lord thank you that your broken body meant ours doesn't need to be broken thank you that your shed blood has has erased our debt for all time and eternity god that we stand clean and cleansed and able to walk victorious in You. 
God, help us to receive and believe. Lord Jesus, we love you. We bless you. We give you the honor and the glory and the power. For you alone are worthy. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. Let's partake together.